Welcome to Team Rabbit Hole Edition 151 with Anders Buck, Jedi High Council, Master Instrument Maker, Sax Player, Freedom Fighter, Ambassador Jedi Dane. Join the team as we go down the rabbit hole with Anders Buck. Welcome. Thank you very much, Raphael. I hope you're doing well today, sir. Uh, something we tend to do at the beginning of these episodes is to talk about the episode uh, numerologically, the reduction of it um, uh, in terms of major arcana is what I'll talk about, and Rafa will discuss the correlating numerological galactic heritage card. So in this one, it's going to be 15. No. What number is this? 151? Yes. So I have to make a choice. Now, do I keep going up? Or to reduce, reduce. Go up, so, go up, Okay, go up. okay, okay. So we'll do... Uh, it isn't 15. It is, That's for some reason what you read last time, though it could have I been know, 6 too, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's going to be the lover's card. But that would be only 6. Hold on, what is now it? We're seven? At 7. All right, yes. okay, here, we got it. God, geez, I'm all full, like flustered, don't ask. Uh, seven. We got seven. We got there, folks. The chariot card. So I am confident that with discipline I will succeed. This is about taking charge of your own destiny, seizing the moment, and letting the momentum carry you forward, finishing what you've set into motion, and not hesitating. You can do this. Raphael, what is the number for you? Of course, everything is synchronicity. So now we are entering the serious cards. Serious itself. I mean, we've had many shows. There is an infinite amount of things to say about Sirius, the dog star, also oftentimes symbolized, let's say, as an idea of the higher self. So anyhow, anyhow, this card says Sirius 43, saving humanity, past timeline. In the early Earth days, the Syrians had positive intentions to protect humans and make sure that they evolved without interference. However, they became a bit obsessive about saving the human race and many humans who were once Syrians still carry this comic pattern today. It is time for this pattern to be released. Know that no one person can save humanity or another person. All We all play a vital role in Earth's transformation. The universe works through us. All we need to do is stay open, release the need to force change, and be living examples of the Creator in every step we take. So, Anders, beautiful. yeah, I was going to say, did either of those cards resonate with you? Sorry about trying to figure it out last second. I'm like, all right, we finally got it. So we got the chariot card moving forward, continuing stuff with you've started um, and like travel potentially, but also what he just read. Did that resonate at all with you? Absolutely. I would say it was just absolutely smack in the center, um, especially when you hear something like, don't try to save the whole world. You could just start by saving yourself and you know maybe be inspirational to others that absolutely resonates and your card as well the first the seven right the chariot yeah um certainly i i'm when when i set a goal to myself at least uh, i really like to reach that goal and i'm pretty persistent and i'm pretty stubborn so i normally 
get to where I want to go. But, you know, life happens to all of us and the universe has wonderful lessons in every around every corner. So you also have to stay open and, you know, follow your intuition. Sometimes your tracks lead other ways than you expect it. Well, it's interesting you say that because the chariot card corresponds with the cancer sign in um, astrology, and that is the first time intuition is kind of turning on in terms of the Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, the first kind of set of uh, astrology signs of the 12. And, um, yeah, this is, a, like you're saying, kind of no, following your gut, but then, like, not giving up when it gets hard, like following through, you know. Uh, and but simultaneously following through with what yourself, not necessarily having to save the world and follow through with, you know, um, it makes me think of like Iron Man or something where he's like, in I think Iron Man three, he's like, oh shit, a bunch of people are falling from the sky and I've got to like figure out how to save them all at once or whatever. It's like we don't have to do that. We just have to kind of like put the mask on ourselves, like in a plane when it's going down. To, like put the mask on first for yourself, then you can help other people, like we were saying. So Anders, out of curiosity, how do you know Raphael? Well. Actually, um, that's a lovely story. Uh, Raphael just, you know, kind of happened in my life. No, seriously. Um, he was this lovely translator. I was uh, asked to do a talk on Okitok, the show. And uh, my German is just, that just sucks. So uh, Klaus uh, told me that Raphael is going to translate from my poor English into... <laughs> Uh, German, so the listeners can understand what I'm saying. So that's how I met Raphael. And he turned out to be, you know, knowledgeable, a really great guy, and uh, with an amazing memory. I was just baffled by how much he could remember and translate. So he got my respect from day one. Well, that's always you. cool. I gotta yeah, say, Raphael. though, I actually uh, took some digital notes as far as I remember, at least uh, keywords. But yeah, it's always fun, you know, especially with legalese and so on to find the proper terms. Since I'm not entirely unfamiliar with this topic, which hence we had Brandon on that I pulled in. Hence we had uh, Steve on whom I pulled in. So yeah, I'm just happy, you know, for this information in any to any degree that it is possible, you know, to be spreading it and make more people aware that there are is also there are many different approaches, of course, but that there are so many practical methods that can be applied on this process of, you know, self-discovery, self-knowledge and uh, assumption of one's, you know, divine sovereignty. So, Anders, yeah. you're a yeah. Dane. Uh, yeah. I'm kind of curious if you can go as little as, you know, you can make it brief or as long as you want, we can kind of explore however you prefer um tell us about where you're coming from like have you always lived there you were kind of talking a little in the green room about um the 2008 crash and a shift in kind of uh reality tunnels if you want to put it that way fill us in on um as much or as little as you want in terms of like what kind of culture did you grow up in was it spiritual like were you always playing saxophone that kind of stuff <laughs> yeah i'll try to make it uh, short and interesting if i can i'm known for you know speaking on too. for hours Don't... but okay let's start with the beginning you know my first kind of memories yeah i'm a dane i've always been a dane i'm born on the land in the land of denmark um so and my parents were just you know ordinary school teachers uh, kind people as far as i remember uh, had a pretty, you know, normal uh, childhood. 
had uh, two sisters who was much more uh, in love with books than me. I was the guy, you know, running around bare feet on the grass, talking to the mosquitoes and the bugs and, you know, this kind of guy. So books didn't really interest me a whole lot because nature kind of, you know, talked to me in a way, talked to my soul, talked to my spirit. So that was kind of my ultimate teacher from a very early age, and I was quite aware of that. And my sisters were very much loved by my parents because they you know loved books and they, <laughs> they were teachers so i kind of became the black sheep i don't think my parents wanted it to be like that they just found me perhaps a little peculiar and a little bit too natural i think uncontrollable maybe i don't know so uh, had had this lovely uh, childhood very free i grew up on a farm uh, from the age of 11 so I had, you know, a lot of nature, a lot of space around me, and I was just always, when I came home from school, I was always in nature. So that was, that was a big inspiration, and I kind of learned to meditate, not by, you know, uh, uh, knowledge about meditation. It was just like sitting on this hill, viewing the lake, the creek run by, looking at the lakes with all the... Um, uh, the birds flying and it was just like it was a language that I knew how to speak so to speak and uh, and that just it did something to my soul that touched me so at the age of 13 that's the first really kind of cornerstone or mark in my life I had an out-of-body experience when I was fishing and that was scary but it was also an amazing experience to be can outside you go, of your body. Can you go into a little detail about what that meant? And I'm curious, was the farm you were working on like a dairy farm or like vegetables or what kind of farm was it? No, it was just, it was like um, my parents bought this farm that was just, you know, there was a little dairy production, there was a little pig production and, you know, a lot of fields. But they didn't grow the fields, they just rented it out and we didn't have any animals until, you know, later when they decided to have this uh, mink farm, you know, fur production, which is just about killing a lot of innocent animals to steal their skin so that rich ladies can wear them. Pretty that disgusting. I'm, I'm vegan, yeah. I get it. Was it were yeah. our minks cute to play with, or did you not really participate with them on that level? Uh, well, if you like to lose a finger every now and then, they're pretty cute, but they are very aggressive. You don't want to play with them. They are not like otters or... Yeah, there are other weasels, I think they're called, that are much uh, nicer to play with. You can actually have them as pets, but you can definitely not have a mink as a pet. You're going to lose fingers because they are very aggressive. So that was not... No, that was not very interesting, but, um, well, I grew up on this farm and I had this crazy experience. I was out of my body. I was fishing. I was up very early. It was three in the morning. The sun was up. The birds were singing. The sun was shining. The wind was just not present. It was just complete stillness. And in this complete stillness, my mind just went blank. And I think it just took like a few minutes and I was just poof outside my body standing 
uh, with my awareness, my eyes, my senses, two meters behind my body in a kind of five o'clock position, looking at this body that was kind of sleeping over the fishing rod. So it was really, really strange being me outside of me, if you can get my drift. And it kind of scared me because I thought, my first thought actually was, now I'm dead. <laughs> and I kind of didn't want to die this young, so I ran back into my body that I kind of managed to wake it up, but I wasn't quite in sync. And I was just in the body, and then I thought, okay, now I'm in my body again. And then I kind of relax, and poof, I was out again. <laughs> so it was a kind of back and forth for a while. But I managed to, when I was outside, get this feeling of the existence that is more real than what I thought I knew was reality. So that was kind of a really important impression in my consciousness that started at that point. Yeah, I've had an OBE in high school. I think I was 17 or so, and it was because of exercise and full of different circumstances, yourself and like meditation, um, just doing some crazy shit there. But um, yeah, it's not what one would expect. I mean, people talk about OBEs, out-of-body experiences, um, and... I don't remember seeing myself in the, uh, such a discreet way and, and like as witnessing of myself. It was more like, oh, I see my body and now I'm astrally floating around. So I was still like kind of a silver soul tethered to my body or something like that. Um, did you lose the fish while you were, you know, did it distract you from the fishing or like were you like so enraptured in that moment that it kind of uh, caused you to have an epiphany more than like the uh, bob bobber getting tugged at? Yeah, surely the later, I think. Uh, it was, I, I just forgot everything about the fishing part and just packed up. And I was, it was a strange uh, energy because I was partly scared shitless from this experience because I didn't have any terms to kind of grasp it in my consciousness what, uh, what uh, just happened to me. And, and still, it was wonderful. So, I was scared and it was wonderful, so it was kind of this strange feeling I, I had to deal with. And I wanted to share it with someone. I wanted I to go home. Say, did and, you tell your family or anything? Yeah, 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 yeah. When I came home, my father was up, so I told him, and he just looked at me and said, nah, that's nothing. Just take a, an aspirin and go to bed. And I just, what? I just, I just told you something important, but, you know. So I kind of figured, okay, I could go to bed. I was pretty tired, actually. So I lay down on the bed. Five seconds later, standing beside my body, lying in the bed. So it just kept on repeating for, you know, a period of time. And I kind of got used to it to the point where I could actually, when I was walking in school, I could step outside of my body and walk beside my body and kind of remote control it. That was really fun. And it just ended quite uh, brutally when I was knocked unconscious in a in a ball game. So yeah, and then it stopped. Then I couldn't get out of my body. And so, have you been able to do it since then, or is that just kind of the power's gone? Yeah, I no. I just uh, last year I started training again, and I actually succeeded by will to get out of the body. Uh, it's easier to do early in the morning and late at, uh, late at night when you're going to sleep. Then the veil is kind of thinner. 
So yeah, I can I can do it on purpose now. It's quite fun. I'm glad you can get back on the horse saddle, so to speak. So when you were growing up, it's not, I mean, were your parents spiritual at all, or like they just did, like did they not care about that kind of metaphysical stuff? Did they just not know how to? I mean, I'm guessing you know you mentioned your dad and didn't bring it back up again. Did your sisters think anything of it? Did you just kind of keep it to yourself? Mm, I don't think I told my sisters, you know, until I got grown up and much later in my life. And my parents spiritual? Mm, not really. They were kind of this, you know, flower power generation, young people growing up, becoming something, wanting to, you know, they were actually quite uh, against the system. As I remember them in my childhood, they were always telling us to answer, uh, to ask questions to authority and not just, you know, take an order. But as they matured and aged, they just became the system. So, no, they were not really spiritual. They, my father developed a religious belief, you know, late in his life. I don't know why, because he was quite the opposite in his young years. I don't know if he had some experiences. He was very introvert, so he didn't talk about his feelings very much. So, yeah, that was kind of He was of probably scenario. astral projecting and just never knew how to tell you. <laughs> He's like, oh, I believe in all this stuff. Yeah, I think he actually, you know, later in life when we were talking, you know, about spiritual stuff, I think I remember he actually said that he had tried it a couple of times. But typical him, he just, you know, said, ah, that was nothing. That was quite normal. Everybody does that. Europeans can be so practical. Uh, even when they're of the flower generation. I um, was in Switzerland for a time, for like a year basically in 2017 up in the Alps, and my mentor slash teacher, the person I um, was learning with was actually Danish. So his name is Perol. Um, and uh, yeah, so I kind of understand that y'all are a little fun. My brother's been to Stockholm. Um, uh, so yeah, I have not. But my uh, we don't have to go off on my trip now. Um, what you can pick up where you were. I didn't mean to cut you off. So you had this out of body. You learned how to fuck with it. Um, you lost it during sports. It sounds like what kind of uh, you were you were still kind of like a kid learning through, I guess the arts and maybe creative pursuits in nature more than like science and math. The and like, how did you get into music? Well, um, that's a that's a good question actually because not none of my parents were any musical lovers so uh, of course they listened to music but that was not really the thing for me um, I don't know it, it started with drums actually and I started playing the drums when I was about like I don't know, 15 I think and just kept on playing drums until I reached high school went into a band a blues band a funk band and yeah that was kind of the start and and when I was in this funk band, we had this guy enter our band and he played the saxophone. And I just absolutely fell in love with that sound. I just thought, wow, that's how music is supposed to sound. And I, I, I think something happened from that moment he entered our band. I just, he was just amazing. He played really, really well. So he was a great inspiration in terms of sound. And I was actually not that good at drama, I think. <laughs> I was, I was just kind of well, mediocre. Shit, you're in a funk band, I hope. 
<laughs> yeah, so was he playing Alto or Was he playing Alto? Alto. Yeah, Alto. So, but but that kind of started my love for the saxophone. And you know, years later, when I got divorced and had stopped playing drums, I promised myself that someday I would buy a saxophone. And that's like 25 years ago. I bought my first saxophone. And I thought to myself, well, it's kind of cool, but it doesn't really look like I wanted. And I wanted to be like that. And it doesn't really sound right. So I started just taking it apart. And that was a journey because there was, you know, it was before digital cameras. So you couldn't just document how everything fitted together and just to enlighten the audience there are 600 moving parts or just parts on a saxophone and if you place one of them in the wrong place which is pretty hard actually you you you, you don't have a working instrument so just getting that saxophone back together after i remodel it and you know gave it a different color and blah 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 that taught me a lot. It was just impossible to play. So I had to take it to a professional who just laughed his ass off and said, well, you make it look good, but you cannot fit the pads. You are just horrible at that. So that was that was my first introduction to, you know, dancing with a saxophone. But I just, I'm just stubborn. I just keep on. And if people say to me, you cannot do this, then I'll show them that it is absolutely possible and that I can do it. So did the guy you took it to, like, take you in an apprenticeship? Or how did you get better at doing this? It sounds like you do it, I don't know, for a living now or for fun, but it sounds like you've mastered it. So how did you go from that self-sabotage upgrade mode to something more in line with what works for the instrument's actual you know variables well i think he gave me a few tips this guy that i went to and you know paid to fix this problem so it could actually play again so i brought it back and started playing and i was not that good at it and then i kind of looked at another instrument and said, ah, I also want a tenor. The first was an alto. So now I want a tenor. So I bought a tenor, but that didn't work either. So I had to do a little, you know, fixing on that. And it just kind of went from there. And I, then I just started challenging myself and I just thought, okay, why not just jump off the, the deep end? Why not just buy a horn that is completely smashed and nobody wants and then it doesn't matter if I fuck it up because I can just, you know, well, bury it in, in the attic. So I bought, the, you know, a horrible horn on eBay. And I just started, you know, thinking and talking to this instrument and saying, okay, what do I need to do this? And luckily, at that time, there was, you know, some aid in books. So I borrowed a few books. But basically, I just learn to listen to the process i think what we have what we people have forgotten and that's part of the skills they don't want us to have skills the powers uh, that be right because when you have skills you learn to communicate with matter and when you when you work with your hands and you create something uh, your creation speaks back to you and teaches you what you need to know in order to be better. 
and create even more beautiful things and better things. And I'm really good at listening, you know, like I told you from my early childhood, I'm really good at listening to, to nature and to process. So I would say that it was the saxophones who taught me how to build and modify saxophones and listen to how to make an instrument produce a certain vibration because sound is vibration, right? And the most beautiful vibrations comes when everything is in harmony. So that was kind of my, okay, let's find a way to bring an instrument to the point where everything resonates in harmony. And that just, I don't know how I do it. It's just, yeah, I just speak to the instrument and it tells me what to do and now I just do it. That's 25 years of practice. Anders, the sax whisperer. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> so, but but it was, for many years, it was just a hobby, actually. So, I think it was like seven years ago, I started doing it, you know, full-time as a professional. And I've been doing it, yeah, ever since as a professional. But the last year, I've been doing UCC, <laughs> Uniform Commercial Code, Contract Law, helping people with sovereignty and not really been tending to my saxophone business. But yeah, it's still there. I still do it sometimes, so it's lovely. Well, it's nice when, um, like you're saying, an organic growth out of the process of improvising with life can create a hobby, and it's even nicer when that hobby can sustain you in any way, whether it's a full-time gig or just kind of a every now and then kind of thing. That's cool either way. Um, and I'm sure other people appreciate what you're doing, or else they wouldn't be coming to you. Um, so out of curiosity, what was in the 2008s and stuff, what was the kind of business and CEO stuff you said you were uh, doing? Like, what was that world like and how did you get out of it? Well, I could just go back a little, you know, and uh, skip my boring teenage years and go straight into my entering into the land of the work zone, the hamster wheel. Um, you know, when you when you grow up in a very traditional family, you kind of get very traditional values. And like uh, most people, it's everyone dreams about becoming a millionaire. And everybody has this notion that when you have all the money in the world, you can do anything and you're just really happy. So I bought that and I thought to myself, okay, so what do I need to become a millionaire and um, at that point I started uh, in communication I had a, a degree in media management actually which is visual communication and media so I turned that into a business uh, sorry specifically with a video production so uh, it was I was doing commercials as an instructor, a director, a producer, uh, and I did that for, yeah, since 2000, I think, I was done with my education. And, and this kind of led me into this, okay, let's grow this corporation, let's, let's make it even bigger. And when you're passionate about something, you tend to attract others that are passionate. So it was kind of a lucky street that 
uh, you know, some investors came by and they said, we want to buy your company. And I said, no. And they said, yes, we want to buy your company. What do you want for it? And I said, okay, you can buy half of it. And I keep the final say in how it's run. And they said, okay, let's do that. And that's like just, a Shark Tank wet dream. There's a show called Shark Tank. Like, I, we want investors and we want to keep creative control. So good on you for negotiating um, and not just kind of, you know, selling out right away. Uh, way to make that work for you. Yeah, well, I had a partner who was, you know, not quite on the same team as, as me when it came to that, you know, later in the process of this merger. Because first we sold 50%. That was kind of fine. I stayed in the CEO chair of my department. It became, instead of just being a business, it became a, an, um, a, a group within this huge corporation or um, conglomerate, no, con not conglomerate, I can't remember the right word, but it, it, it was a quite a large business that they had and they just uh, swallowed us up kind of. But I, I kept in the CEO seat, and so did my partner. So we were the only two CEOs beside the top CEO of the, uh, the big corporation. The head honcho. Yeah, the head honcho, right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that was it was an interesting ride, you know, in terms of fulfilling your dreams maybe these dreams were, you know, fake and illusory, but I made it happen. And uh, we actually did a really good deal and we came, uh, no, we didn't come out. It was in 2007, right? I tried to get it right, the story. In 2007, we sold the last 50% uh, of our shares. So we became a part of this big corporation. And this big corporation very quickly bought up, you know, the two biggest competitors in the market. So we were just like the biggest thing in Europe on this install marketing, which was, you know, flat screen commercials within the shops. That was a big thing in the 90s and 2000. So we were quickly a really big business. We were doing really well, but I was kind of feeling that I had uh, reached the end of my line because I had created something, I had reached my goal, I was a millionaire now, and I was quite frankly very bored because this huge corporation sitting at meetings discussing crap all day and strategy, that was just not really for me. I'm kind of a much more creative soul. I need to be creative, I need to be in a creative process. And I just said to them, I think I'm going to take my leave and I did and I sold all my shares I was actually the only one who got out of this corporation with money because they had a plan and they wanted to go a certain way and I, I, I could just see that it was just going to kill the corporation and I said this to the big boss I said if you go that way you're going to kill the business within five years you're going to go bankrupt and he just he fell literally on the floor, laughing his ass off, telling me what a hillbilly I was, what an uneducated idiot, 
He had never heard anything so ridiculous. Well, six years later, they went bankrupt. And I'm sure I got out. Remembering that session of laughter <laughs> differently now. I sure hope so. Or maybe the universe can help him remember. I don't know. But um, actually, I got out and, and you know got my money invested in a new business, and I thought everything was just going to be perfect. I was just this great success that could never end, right? And uh, I just invested all my money in another business, and it was in 2008. And then the crisis came, and nine months later, boom, bada, boom, not a single dime. So that was quite the, okay, let's hit the ground again. <laughs> so, yeah, well, so I learned that it didn't make me happy. Money didn't make me happy. Yeah, I could buy a lot of things that I actually thought were really cool the first week I owned it. My first Rolex watch, I remember that looking at it every single hour, you know, for a week, and it was just like a watch. <laughs> so so it, things don't give you what you are told that they are going to give you, which is fulfillment, which is joy, which is meaning in life. So I learned that the hard way, and that I'm very, very humbled and very happy that I did learn these lessons. And now I have tried it, now I don't run after money, I don't even bother thinking about it. It's just there when I need it. So that's cool. That reminds me a lot of the chariot card in the sense that you're on a journey, right? And it sounds like there's a lot of levels to the journey going. And it sucks that it's not fun when people use your, um, you know, how you were raised or whatever against you. You're not a hillbilly. And even if you were a farmer type, it's like there's wisdom there. Um, so it's never good to kind of assume people are unable to you know i'm talking against him he's not here to defend himself he's like that guy should know that like uh you know just because you're coming from a certain kind of socioeconomic or cultural position doesn't mean you're unable to do certain things that's very close-minded but you know that i'm sure anyway um going on the chariot card riff though it seems like your journey is taking you on very kind of wendell berry slash uh you know um walden pond type stuff uh, getting woke, I would say, even in a very early age, which is cool, and then shoving through different processes of becoming, because in a, in a sense, um, and it's funny because I do astrology, so I look at people's charts like a Capricorn. They're meant to, come, you know, be business people and achieve. So like material wealth and stuff, as long as they don't let it like define them and get to their heads, that's okay. Whereas somebody like you know Pisces or something like that is going to be like, I want to dream and just do drugs and drink and and you know listen to music. Um, so everyone has a proclivity. I so I wouldn't go off and say things are bad, but it's nice that you you know you hit a high water mark, and whether you think of it as the universe meeting your subconscious or conscious beliefs or needs, um, it was taken from you, and you don't seem too bitter about it, which is nice. There's a lot of people who would have just you know gotten into drinking heavily or fucking lost all their self esteem. Sounds like you were willing to look at it as a challenge uh, and appreciated the blessings, but also on top of that, you see how um vapid and kind of meaningless in an ecclesiastical kind of way it's like you know nice things are nice for a little while and people hype them up but it doesn't make them valuable ultimately like we inject value and meaning into things so if you weren't actually into rolexes you might actually be much more into saxophones or programming or whatever ultimately or fishing um the rolex is only gonna you know hold the high so long 
Um, but it is cool that you kind of had different kind of uh, experiences. Not everybody could say they had a startup uh, and sold and, you know, got out on topic. That. That's a kind of cool anecdote. Um, Rafa, you've been kind of quiet. you have anything to add by any chance? Just wondering. Well, I'm listening to the backstory, basically. All right, yeah. He tucks up and puts his hand on his head or, or whatever. I could see him just like listening intently. He's a Libra. So when he's quiet, we know he's doing all right. Um, and I'm a Gemini, so I just ramble. Uh, but the idea is that kind of faltered. Um, 2008, That's I went to Switzerland at first and uh, right after that crash in 2000, that's January 2009 um, and then again in 2017. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting time. Nobody was really prepared for that. I remember a lot of talk in Switzerland, therefore probably Europe in general. People are like, what the fuck? Well, just by on? the way, again, it's not really that no one was prepared. It's just that, you know, these were the unpopular opinions, just as Anders described with, uh, yeah, you know, it's just always eerie how history tends to repeat itself. Uh, anyways, uh, all I can say is, at least on some level, I can relate to the journey, Anders, that you relate. I always think it's pretty cool. If someone, even in this life, kind of, you know, achieved everything in a sense and really got to know it. I mean, I never achieved that level and I'm not sure if I'm, I don't think I want to be CEO of anything. Um, but it's really cool when you can then come back and, you know, kind of tell the truth after you've seen it for yourself. Of course, the 2008 thing probably was also quite fateful for you, but I can only assume that a short excursion into this kind of realm anyhow was enough for you. And, uh, well, all I can say is it brought you to this place. And I'm really, uh, of course, excited also to get into the meat and potatoes of the, as we termed it for this episode, Jedi High Council. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that these experiences that I had in business, uh, and especially with the banking sector, because of always had this feeling when I was dealing with banks that they were crooks and they were screwing me over. I just couldn't put my finger down and say, this is how they do it. And I think that was a crucial experience for me in my later awakening and my understanding of how the matrix or our reality actually works. Because, well, let's face it, it is the bankers who run the world and who own the world and who control the world. So that, you know, focus on, uh, you know, this illusion of money and wealth and all this crap, that kind of, you know, led my eye to wander and see there's something in the corner over here going on that is, it, I just know that there's something rotten. But I was so deep in this trance this you know mind control of success that i even though my soul was whispering to me there's something wrong here pay attention <laughs> i was not really paying attention because i was looking at my rolex watch so but later in my life i just realized how extremely valuable just these experiences with the banks were in my later understanding and unraveling of the mysteries of banking. And that led me, you know, further down the rabbit hole into what is a bank and how do they produce money and what is where the do they currency? get it from? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Stuff like that. So, yeah. So what, okay. So you lost that job, you kind of reset when, 
tell me a little about your pro. I mean, you're kind of doing it peripherally and you don't have to go lengthily into it if you don't want to, but was there like a moment where you're like, oh shit, I'm in a world run by assholes who are only in it for the money? Or like, when did you start shifting? How did you decide to act with that awareness? It, it was really an aha moment. I saw the film, um, oh, what's it called? It's called uh, By This American Couple. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I forget now. It's okay, don't be yourself up. It'll probably come to you <laughs> while you're talking. Yeah, but it was this one film, it explains how the banking system runs and owns the world. It was two very lovely um, a man and a wife who made this film. He was from a rich family. I don't know if she was. And they just, you know, unraveled how this structure of power and money actually was put together. And I just, when I saw that film, it just clicked. And I just knew, wow. I knew it. I knew the bankers were screwing us. Now I know that they are screwing us. So I actually set out to find out, okay, so how exactly are they screwing us? And drum roll, how exactly are they screwing us? <laughs> yeah, well, what happened was that when I woke up, I just, it was not a pleasant thing to wake up. I think you know that. But realizing that, okay, now I need to look at the banks, I need to look at finance. So I started studying really hard national economics. And I started looking into all the financial papers, all the laws that were kind of setting the foundation for what is called a national bank, which is not a national bank, which is not national, which is not a bank. But I, I found these uh, law um, pages describing the foundation of the Danish National Bank. And I realized, oh my goodness, here we have an institution that is above the law, or what I believed was the law, what was said to be the law. They were above it. They were not, um, they could not be held responsible for any decision made. They didn't have any lawful responsibility whatsoever. Nobody controlled them, you know, or had any supervision over what they were doing. They could print as much money as they wanted and they didn't pay tax. So I thought, oh my God, how can this be? I just believed, you know, I was this guy believing that the law was equal for everyone, and, you know, all that we were fed. And when I realized that, nope, Actually, there exists a part which was, as I knew it then, just the National Bank, who's above that. And I thought, wow, they are above that. So is that just an one exemption or is it actually a, can I find someone else who's above the law? And yes, I could. That was the queen. She was also exempt from the pyramid law. always goes higher. I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I just uh, started, you know, looking into. Okay, now I see a pattern here. So how do I get to find if there is a pattern, and who can say that they are actually above the law? So I started just digging a little deeper, and then I found that okay, the police 
same same thing. The government, same thing. The all the courts, same thing. So I thought, wow, this is just I cannot believe this. So there must exist a jurisdiction above the private law that we were told is the law of the land. There must exist a jurisdiction above that in which these corporations what clever can thing embed I'm not in the thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I thought to myself, if they can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so, so it was just a matter of, you know, discovering what is that jurisdiction. And I'm, well, that's just natural law. They actually construct their corporations in a way that the living men that own these corporations, when they get the profits from the corporation, they move it to the private side. And the private side is not taxable. It has never been eligible to pay tax when you are on the private side. And if you have a trust, you can register it either public or private, and you just keep your earnings on the private side and it's not taxable. Wow, how about that? As I understand these kind of techniques, maybe you even mentioned this, but may also be employed, I heard this somewhere, don't ask me where, by individuals such as quote-unquote Jeff Bezos. And I mean, he's a popular and known figure. Of course, there's others that are much more interesting in the background, but that such kind of individuals are also always only able to have these massive amounts of money. First of all, because unfortunately, oftentimes they have, you know, kind of nefarious business dealings, let's say, or not the most regard for environment and health, but also because they simply know their way around, of course, the legal structures. And I guess, especially when you talk about trusts, this, that's kind of a known term as well. And, you know, any somewhat more important family or whatever, they have a trust. So, um, yeah, and it's really, I mean, it was similar for me, of course, when you realize something's wrong, then in my case, I saw, I saw the Zeitgeist movies which I guess Jim is aware of, Anders, you may be as well, especially Zeitgeist Addendum, maybe recommended. Yeah, it gives a really probably. nice and uh, visual uh, explanation of the whole process. But then anyhow, you realize that, of course, some individuals always knew their way around. So here it also, the point even cannot be, let's, you know, eat the rich, tax the rich or whatever, because those that are really rich, you know, they're not even going to see their balance sheets. And anyhow, they wouldn't be applicable for these type of taxes anyways. So I guess that's just, you know, good to keep in mind. Absolutely. And, you know, what I found in this research was that it's actually a, an extremely simple construction or barrier. And it's a mental barrier that we have all been told is a true thing, which is that we are persons. So I found out that if you define yourself by being a person, you, um, you are actually absolutely under the law. But if you know that you're a living man or a living woman, you are not under any law whatsoever. End of story, period. And that's how the rich get rich, because they are all living. They have a life claim, so they are not persons. So they keep themselves and their profits on the private side, be it in a trust or otherwise, and they know exactly how to 
just operate through the straw man in this field of business, which is just, you know, fiction. That is pretty heavy shit, and I want to kind of get into the ins and outs of what you've stumbled upon and maybe the differences internationally of, you know, Danes are different, dealing with a different system legally than Americans, etc. Um, maybe now would be a good time to take a quick music break. What do you think, Rafael? This is Team Rabbit Hole 151, and I would say that about now, as we have made clear the differentiation between what is called in legalese a person and uh, a living man, now may be a good time to, allow me to say in a sense, you know, the new boss in town, in a way. <laughs> Sorry, my wife just, uh, you know, in the background uh, turned the plant over, so I got a little scared. <laughs> Can you repeat that for me? Oh, basically, I just said, now that we made a differentiation between, uh, let's say, private and public and uh, legal person and living man or woman, now may be a good time, as I said, to introduce the new boss in town, of course, with a smirk. What I mean is uh, to maybe explain, you know, the foundation of what you have created. And uh, you, a little bit, we already went into the logic of it, but maybe into the current state of what there is, because there is, uh, as I know, of course, quite a few amazing things to report. Yeah, well, as, as you might have guessed, uh, my, my journey into this discovery of uh, what's real and what's bullshit um, kind of made me want to, you know, place myself in a room where I was at a point where I was living, not a fiction. Because I discovered that if you're a fiction, if you're a person, and you believe yourself to be a person, you just have absolutely no rights. You have no rights whatsoever. You're just a sailor on a boat on the high seas, and you'll just take orders, and that's it. That's your life. So I thought, okay, how do I get to be living? And found out a way to, to do that, and you know, register it correctly, and blah, blah, blah. A long time later, I started telling others about how to become living. And that led to that we now in Denmark currently are 210 living men and women on the land of the nation of Denmark. So that's a big thing, I think. And we decided to take matters into our own hands, so to speak, quite literally. And we looked up what does it take to make a lawful assembly, that means and uh, court, it's actually called a court. So what does it take to establish a court of law? And a court of law is an assembly of men or women. They have to be living. They cannot be persons. What does it take? And I went through all the law books I can find or could find. And uh, in England, it's seven. In Scotland, it's 15. In all of Europe, because that's Roman civil law, it's 10, which is called Decemviri. And in the US, it is 12 plus 1, which is a council. So we made, actually, uh, to start off, it was a council, but now we have upgraded to a higher size, which is the Scottish version of 15 men and women 
uh, to sign any law, and then it is a law. It's not a declaration. It's not private law. It's not just rules. It not. It's not um, legislation. It is a law. So we sat down and created a high council, a high court, and we started writing laws. And that's interesting to be a part of a process like that. And we call ourselves the Council of the Seven Aswali. So any questions, any thoughts around that? What? I know you said blah, blah, blah in terms of the process. That fascinates me in terms of, I, you don't have to get into too much detail if it's you know specific to Denmark slash just way too much legalese over my head. But what were the processes? How long did that take? Was it difficult? Did you get help from the outside? Were you, did you do it all by yourself and now you're doing this for others? Or how, how did the mechanics of this, you know, going from a person to a sovereign essentially go about? Yeah, sure, I can explain that. And it's not blah, blah, blah. It's actually, it's interesting enough. I was just trying to answer Raphael's um, beautiful question. So going a little backwards, I'm trying to explain what it takes to move yourself from being a person into being a living man or woman, which you, you know, de facto are. Um, that takes a little, you know, understanding. And you need to know... Well, I started just looking into what the Danish legislation said about who is included in their system of private law because it's private, because it's a corporation. It's like Does McDonald's. this have anything to do with maritime law? Is that similar? Yeah. Is this a universal situation? Okay, because we've talked yeah. to an American who's doing this, and I didn't know if that was nationally specific or if this is just kind of like the rules of the game for the elite or whatever. It is, it is the rules of the game for, uh, for the elites, and it is also maritime, but, it, but they call it private law. Actually, in Denmark, they call it positive law. That sounds really positive, doesn't it? But it, it has nothing to do with positive. It doesn't mean positive. It just means that it's positioned by them, of course. Uh, it is a private law, and that's actually what the Danish courts tell on their website that they practice private law. So it's a corporation just like McDonald's. If you work for McDonald's, you need to wear a McDonald's t-shirt and a McDonald's hat and blah, blah, blah. Apply to all the rules and regulations according to McDonald's, right? That's their corporate law. And since the government in Denmark and pretty much all around the world are nothing but privately owned corporations. Well, voila, there you have it. They cannot make law. Why? Because they are just persons. They are operating under commerce, and there you have your water law, your maritime jurisdiction. It's actually called international jurisdiction, if you want to be very specific because it only operates on the high seas, which is international, right? So they really, they have this thing about words, so you have to be very specific about what words mean, because it hides exactly what, you know, the truth is when you unveil the meaning of the words. So that's, that's an interesting process in and of itself. 
but so discovering so that it's you're not like a saxophone in that like if you get one thing wrong it doesn't <laughs> yeah. quite play <laughs> yeah it, actually it, it is kind of exactly the same mechanical mess as a saxophone if you want to paraphrase it right so the person is a fiction and the person is created like a mirror image using your name so what do they do these uh, owners of the corporation well they buy you as lost property because you have been found as a baby drifting on the docks on the shore side by a dock tour right and your mother left you she didn't claim you when you came out of her and she let the nurse take you away so you became driftwood now you're just timber flotsam and jetsam sorry flotsam and jetsam of the high seas once you i guess if mommy just held on to the baby and didn't give it to the nurse we'd all be in a different situation or how does that work yeah they i think it's a ritual actually because the midwife Definitely, yeah. yeah the midwife i know a few midwives and for some reason they hold the baby up into the air they are told that it's for checking the bottom the feet and that everything is right but it's not it's actually a ritual now the baby is floating in a sea of space right so it's in maritime it's not on the land if it was immediately put on the womb or the breast of the mother it would be on the land right and and most births take place in a hospital which is what it's a gathering of dog halls <laughs> so it's in the harbor area right it's actually a warehouse for lost goods if you you read the the law the uh, definition print. yeah of a, of a hospital so you are this lost uh, package that is found and you are sold to the state as an orphan and because you're sold to the state what does this good new parent do to you well first of all it sets up an account now, how does it do that it needs to bring you into business into maritime so it creates a mirror image of you using your name you know a real name is small caps uh, 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 all cap uh, what's it called a big letter and small letters a capital letter capital, and small yeah. letters yeah right sorry but you speak what? multiple languages don't apologize even if you speak poor german i speak english <laughs> and i'm teaching myself japanese uh you you're quadlingual already so you're doing good bro okay thank you <laughs> okay so they take this mirror image of your name and this mirror image they write it in all capital letters so it's not you but it's a mirror image of you it's not a perfect image but it's an image so they have created your straw man through your name and this name it gets a number well in denmark it's called a cpr number central person register number and this number it relates to a trust account that is in the uh, uh, what is that called? I forget that word. 
in the government, they have this, the treasury, yeah, sorry. They have a TDA account, and this TDA account, that is your social security number that relates to this TDA account. It's not the account number per se, but it relates to it. So when you are turned into a person, which is nothing but a corporation, that is a mirror image of the living, this is really crucial to understand exactly how they do it. Then they get you to believe that you are this person because you get the personal number pertaining to the corporation that they, they created. And they don't tell you that you are now a corporation. They tell you that you're a person. And you need to look up what on earth a person means. And if you look up person, it has two different meanings. It has a legal meaning and it has a social meaning. The social meaning of the word person is that you're wearing a mask, a facial mask, actually. Oh, a pope of the times, right? Yeah. So that's that's a person. And yeah, it could be actually when you're wearing this mask, you actually Under tell law that you're a person. Yeah. yeah, right? That was good. Thank you for that. So now that you're a person, you're no longer living. And they get to be, they get you to believe that you're a person, and the uh, the lawful meaning of the word person, if you look it up in Black's Law Dictionary, it says that a person is a man's rank in society. What is a rank? Well, that's a military rank, right? You don't have a rank unless you're Private, in the military. Right? Sorry. I mean, what reminds me of is the lowest rank in military usually is actually called private. I mean, this may again be misleading. Exactly. But, yeah. Exactly. There you have it. Yeah. So now that you're a private, which is, you know, the opposite of what the word private actually means uh, in terms of private or public, that's something else. But yes, you are the lowest rank. You are the sailor on the deck. You're the one who... Uh, shrubs the uh, uh, floorboards of the vessel that you're on uh, and you don't have any rights. You're under maritime, you only obey orders and you have privileges. So, and that's how the maritime comes in and it's really interesting because you cannot say no to a direct order. You have to follow the orders because you're in the military. And if you disobey the orders, well, then you know, then it's prison or flogging or you know, a fine, whatever. Walk the plank. Walk the plank, exactly, and there are sharks underneath. So you, you tend to follow the, the orders, right? But what you can do within the system, and there is a kind of remedy within the system, within the maritime system, that is that you can say, I want to do that, I, Captain, I want to do that, but it's gonna hurt my knees, so I need an extra set of uh, protection for my knees, right? And I want uh, two extra biscuits because I need to blah, 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 you know? So you can argue your pay for the job. You cannot refuse the job, but you can debate your privileges. Like negotiate. Yeah, and that's all right. That you can do, and that is, you know, perfectly all right. And you will probably get a little bit better pay 
if you object or if you negotiate, right? But if you resist an order, it's mutiny. like mutiny. Yes, exactly. It's mutiny. So you, well, then you need to walk the plank or what's worth worse, right? So this is how they set up the system. This is what they turn you into. They turn you into a person, which is a mask, a facial mask, very, you know, appropriate in these times. So, so you're like a proxy of yourself. I mean, essentially you have like a, uh, in the Matrix films that talk about a um, residual image, self-image. It's almost like that. You have a projected self-image that's representing you in legal terms that isn't actually yourself, but because you're projecting that image whereas some other people who are not persons are not, they treat you differently. Exactly. And you're standing in law, it's, you know, you don't have any standing. <laughs> you are completely without standing. And, and the funny thing is, how do they get you to, you know, enter into maritime? Because that's a whole other story as well that is quite interesting. Because, okay, let's say you are born on a hospital, right? And you were left by your mother, poor thing. And you were just found by a doc whore, or a doctor, sorry. And uh, this doctor just sold you to the Vatican, sold your soul to the Vatican, and sold your body to the banks. Um, now, this great new owner of yours, which only does business on the high seas because they are a pirate ship. They bring you on board the pirate ship. So how do you get back to the land? How do you get back to your house, your family, and so on? Well, you can only enter land as a foreigner. Once you have been adopted, turned into a person, now you are alien to your own lands, to your own country. Right? That's very clever. So now you enter onto the shoreline, but you cannot get on land. Why? Because you need a passport, because now you're a ship seeking harbor in times of war. So you need permission, you need a passport. So when they give you a passport, they are telling you you're a ship, there's a war, and you are permitted to enter the harbor. The port. But you, but you are foreign to the land. So earlier on, you said something to the effect of um, most countries do this. Are there, not, are there some countries who have avoided this kind of scheme or is everybody uh, complicit? I think there are some countries that doesn't have this system yet. I think North Korea, for one, and uh, oh, everybody's I Iran. <laughs> yeah, okay, exactly. These are the ones. Maybe this is why they're being so scrutinized politically in the global arena. Um, ironically, because I've heard, I don't. I mean, conspiracies are rabbit holes. So you got to be careful which ones you throw your head into. But little things like, oh, Gaddafi and other people were refusing to go on a gold standard, which gets into banking kind of stuff. Um, or they were threatening to get off of it, and that's why we went into uh, these places and destabilized the countries. To but there's a whole lot of reasons. I mean, there's probably not just one reason, but it's funny that the ones that are not submitting to the yoke of this system are the ones we demonize and think the worst of, at least typically in the cultures of these uh, you know, participating countries. Yeah, 
And, you know, North Korea and uh, Iran, as far as I know, they don't have a central bank yet. And in order for this system to be implemented, you need a national bank. Because what is a national bank, actually? For Even the, the name a bank, like yeah. the shore is a bank, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all maritime expressions when you look at it. And you should actually, all your listeners out there, you should, you know, grab an online version of Black's Law Dictionary and you should look up the word national bank. Uh, preferably find a Black's Law Dictionary 5th edition because it explains it perfectly. It says crystal clear that a national bank is doing business and it is incorporated, first of all, into the Federal Reserve Bank system, period. So it means that every national bank is part of the Federal Reserve Central Bank system. And it is doing business under the laws and regulations and codes of the United States Incorporated, not the United States of America, but the United States Incorporated. And there, there's actually a really good documentary. I don't know if you've seen it, and I don't know if it pertains to international situations. But there's a, I think it's called the Corporation or something like that. I remember seeing it back in like maybe the late nineties or two thousands, and it was getting into the fact that these are legal entities. They have the same rights as humans, but they're not clearly flesh and blood. But they're basically proxy souls if you want to put it that way corporations themselves so that's why you know directors of boards and things like that they have a vested interest in keeping these things in a certain like they have rights quote unquote uh, the same as a human might have uh, but now i'm kind of wondering <laughs> it seems like a bunch of spider webs like what defines what and who's playing what game so uh, but uh it's an interesting documentary just for people who are listening um it's called i think it's called the corporation or something i'll look up what the title is it's uh it's horrifying because it starts making you realize there are a lot of levels to the game being played. Um, out of curiosity, you're talking about natural law being like the one on all true thing. If that's the case, or if given that's the case, why do we have to participate in the matrix in a certain way? Um, I mean, is it just, you know, we're kind of climbing up a greased pole and we have to like get, you know, out of Plato's cave, so to speak? Or um, why can't we just declare that, you know, one term and just kind of nullify these things? It just hasn't been set up that easily. Or, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the short question to that, is, or the short answer to that is, you can actually. You just have to really, really closely stick to, in every situation, that you are just under natural law. And that will work for you. I'm pretty sure it will. Um, the problem, uh, as I see it, is that you have to, to at least to some degree, have an interaction with this corporate world because they supply you with your lighting, with your heat, with your food to a certain extent, your transportation and so on and so forth. So you have to kind of find a middle ground between this corporate world and the real world. And that's where, you know, some of the uniform commercial code secure party creditor rules and how you can play that game that applies uh, and then you can get a lot of different uh, much more privileged situations in your life if you are a secure party creditor but that's a whole other story
So, Raphael, did you have any questions? I can keep asking stuff. <laughs> well, thank you for uh, laying it out. Maybe uh, last time the show is called Souverainetét uh, in Denmark, I guess. It's on the Okitoki YouTube channel to anyone interested in checking it out. It's both English and German, I think, for pretty much all parts. So there's some of the backstory there, but maybe you would like to get into the, let's say, uh, current situation and also the steps you've achieved, like both uh, regarding the registration that was properly logged and uh, the things you filed, maybe just to mention it briefly, and the new, let's say, symbolic change of changing of the guard, where I actually heard, you know, there's many rumors going around this, that something similar may have happened uh, with the queen, actually, that, you know, at least someone took her plaque away or something like that. So maybe you want to get into, let's say, your version of that and uh, your, let's say, quote unquote, frontline happenings. Yeah, sure. I would like that. Um, well, here in Denmark, as uh, you know, I, I spoke a lot about in the previous show was that we as a council decided that one of these corporations uh, that has been doing business, you know, just harvesting all our mineral uh, wealth, all our trees, and just, you know, for profit, and nothing of this gigantic sums of uh, money that they have harvested from our forests, our lands, and so on and so forth, under the uh, pretense of uh, caring for the nature, you know, like, oh, we are the guardians of nature, right? But when you look at the balance sheets, it is just like billions a year, they just suck out of the nature. So we decided that why not try and, you know, just close it. So we went to a lot of trouble. Uh, it actually took two years of research and planning. First, we contacted the Pope and we uh, offered him a contract wherein he gave up all title to these 200,000 acres of land that this corporation has administered for all of us because we as the sovereigns uh, of the nation of Denmark actually own this land, it's our land, it's our native land, but the Pope holds the title or did held the title. So we made him an offer in the shape of a commercial contract. And he accepted that contract by, you know, silent acquiescence. So in order for a contract of maritime nature to be completely valid without the signature of the second party uh, and just silent acquiescence or silent consent, uh, you have to wait one year and one day and then you can make a salvage claim because then it's just driftwood and nobody owns it. And we said, okay, Pope, do you own this land? And he didn't say anything. So either he died from a heart attack, left for another planet, I don't know what, he didn't answer. So we have to wait one year and one day and then we made another, a second commercial contract, which is a salvage claim contract. We sent that to the Pope, and we gave him 45 days plus three, which is according to Maritime, uh, to answer, and he didn't reply. So, and this time we actually learned a bit more about Maritime and Uniform Commercial Code, 
So we learn, you know, the paragraphs that we can use or apply to place his signature on the contract bindingly. So we know how to do that as well. So we signed it for him just, you know, to help him a bit. And he accepted. So now we have two contracts, one signed by the Pope and us, the council, wherein the Pope gives away all title to the Council of the Seven Eswali, which is going to hold this land in trust for the Danish people. So, with this in our hands, we created a, an affidavit of truth, which we sent to the Queen, where we said to the Queen, we do not believe that you are uh, the sovereign, that you have any right to the land, because we have not been presented with any material facts or evidence that this is the case, and we believe that it is not the case. Uh, you know, build it up like a real affidavit, right? So we had like 25, you know, points on this affidavit, and she just confirmed, no, I don't own the land, no, I don't hold the title, and no, you're right, no corporation has any right to own the land. And with these three very heavy contracts in hand, we made a cease and desist order as a council uh, to this corporation. And we signed it with 15 autographs, not signatures, autographs for living men and women. And we sent it off to this corporation with a small bill of 21 trillion Danish kroner in payment for stolen uh, property belonging to the Danish people. And they had like 30 days to pay this off. And it should be paid to every single Danish national into their bank account in equal shares. So that's what we did. And that's like, I don't know, I think it's two months ago. And Last week, I was on a big uh, landmass, uh, 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 an area of nature which is, you know, preservable nature. I don't remember the right wording for it. But owned previously owned by this corporation called Naturstyrus, the one that we were telling to shut down, and they had removed every single sign that said Naturstyrus. They were removed, all of them, all of them. And it was like 6,000 acres of land, and they had removed every single one. And there was just a crown which symbolizes Rome. Uh, so they acknowledged that the title does not belong to them, and that they cannot claim it. And as I read it, because I have learned to read these crazy <laughs> signs that they put up, they are telling us, well, you're the holder of the contract with the Pope. Now it's yours. We are, we are moving forward on that and we are taking it to the council. So what is the next step here? And I think the next step is that we are going to visit some of the local administrators on these land areas. We're going to talk to them kindly and politely, explain to them that they have been closed and that we set a date that we are going to open uh, eco-villages projects, nature preservation projects, and uh, you know specify when and where this is going to happen, and invite them to join us. You know, get an education, take a, um, 
a course in how you really take care of nature, be it permaculture or whatever, right? So I think it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, sure, we're in for some shaky times, but we're also in for some very, very interesting times, I think. Wow, exactly. It sounds like um, this maybe we've had people come on, uh, Brendan came on, and his story is really interesting. If people haven't heard that podcast, they should. It's very matrixy, going into court rooms and saying the right code and avoiding arrests and all sorts of stuff like that. Interesting stuff. This sounds like it's the kind of the next level up in the sense that uh, you're actually taking back land. And when you say like uh, administrations, are you talking about like government buildings? And you basically are going to be like, you have a certain amount of time to either get on board or get out of town. Yeah. Because the okay, they have these uh, two. They had these two hundred thousand acres, which is uh, primarily forest, but they also have farmland. <coughs> Excuse me, and they have three thousand five hundred uh, farms and houses and you know buildings that can be used as well. So when you're building an eco village, you want to kind of move into an area where you have some buildings so you can live while you're building this you know a really equal village with the right materials and the right design and so on so on so that it could be a really nice and interesting uh, transition to use these buildings and then you know maybe use the materials and tear that down and build something new from it and That's yes it was it was uh so in a sense it's kind of like if the rebel forces in star wars went to the death star and said we own this <laughs> actually and uh, you guys could either use it with us or not i mean that's a bad analogy but um do you find that people when you tell them this in denmark are open to this idea or do they think it's like dangerous do they find um they don't believe it's true like how do you present this to people who aren't in your um, court or whatever uh, council to to get on board? Well, luckily for us, uh, this corporation, Naturstyrelsen, Natural Management, or what you will translate it into, they are not very liked uh, amongst Danes because they have been acting as stupidly as you know most of these government branches and they hold a lot of uh, disrespect amongst the people so it's not that hard to convince danes that we can do it better than they have done um, basically their you know model of business is that they cut down a large uh, area of forest and then they rent it out uh, for cow farmers to graze that's that's pretty much it and then they can sell the lumber and then they can make oh, profit innovative yeah yeah that's really creative and that's the epiphany of natural preservation when you ask them or maybe not the the guys who are working you know out in the nature i think they really from the heart want to preserve nature but they are stuck in this stupid system so actually in this season desist order we we wrote to this corporation, we are going to school every single one of your employees. We are going to offer them a free pass to live in our eco-villages and they will get a free house and a free uh, plot of land and live 
alongside of us if they so desire. And um, yeah, well, that's an offer that's hard to resist, I think. What's funny to me is, I mean, the irony as an American talking to Europeans, is it sounds like a bunch of pilgrims left Europe to go to a new land and try to do kind of this thing. And then eventually it became the system that it ran from. Uh, maybe this is a globalized Illuminati type situation, whatever. I don't need to go down that rabbit hole. But um, now, you know, most people are not sovereign. And it seems like, honestly, I don't know. America has a different flavor, so it gets very kind of like guns and God very quick. Um which is, I mean, I'm a theist, but I don't really want to shoot guns particularly. Um, and it sounds like whether this takes on in other places, I mean, is this something that's happening in other countries? Are you the leading edge of this kind of movement in Denmark? Are you guys the pioneers of it? Because it sounds like you guys are kind of, in, do you see what I mean? It's like an inversion of the uh, uh, exodus out of Europe by people to colonize and make North America what it is. And now most of the world is, getting to a breaking point on these systems and it's ironic that Europe it sounds like is almost doing doing that process but uh, are you guys like the ones doing this or are there other groups like you and you guys all know of each other or how is that going to work well it's it's a really interesting uh, analogy you tell me here about you know how the system is kind of turned up on its own head and, and you know kind of going back to its own roots but on the head and that's how the system evolved and i think that's that's pretty sharp actually a sharp i mean you're observation think of it that way yeah yeah basically yeah a neo-pilgrim and it isn't about religious (laughs) freedom necessarily it's about sovereignty you know natural law sovereignty yeah absolutely i don't think we are like the ones doing it we might be you know some of the first movers but the idea of this actually gathering, uh, you know, enough living men and women, I want to accredit that to uh, Romney Stewart because he actually kind of uh, showed me in a film that this is all it takes to create a law assembly, a high court, right? So he just planted this idea in my head and I thought, well, we are already on the way. We had already gathered, you know, a lot of uh, living men and women around us. Why don't we create a high court? Is it possible? And yes, it's possible. And we did it. And well, now we're here telling them what to do. So so the, the irony or the beauty of it is that the system that they have created somehow even though it's a restrictive and, you know, tyrannical system, it's also our liberation because they have created it in such a way that when you find the door, there's no way back. The system is absolutely 100% set for destruction, self-destruction, because it cannot sustain itself if enough living men and women say enough, we don't want this, we are taking back our power. And this is happening all over the world, I'm sure. Well, right, like the protests in Berlin recently. Um, it's tricky because mainstream media doesn't cover these things. And and then there's just so many layers, at least in what I'm looking at, it overwhelms me. So I just don't pay attention, whether it's QAnon people or Antifa and all this kind of stuff. So I just it gets very kind of divisive and confusing very quickly. So I'm just like, I'm just going to breathe and hold my steady and stuff. 
But what it kind of reminds me of, in some sense, uh, what you're doing is like in the Matrix films, and we just had an episode on the Matrix recently, which is people should check out if they haven't. Um, like a roundtable on the Matrix series, which is all. I uh, hope you've seen it. It's a good movie series. Um, there is this idea that everyone's kind of in a simulation. People unplug from the simulation, but then they replug themselves in to liberate through that system. I mean, that's the whole point of Morpheus and Neo in the you know doing their things in the Matrix, quote unquote. Um, and that sounds kind of like what you're doing. So it's like the you know shipbuilding isn't bad, but some people made a big ship that's a pirate ship, and now people are deciding to take that pirate ship back and become explorers more than pirates, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. And I can just uh, just to give you a little brief uh, overview over what goes on in our tiny house. I live in a tiny house that I built some years ago, and this has kind of become the the central <laughs> uh, station for uh, sovereignty. And we have next week we have uh, four people coming from Britain, and they are going to take the torch to England. And they are going to set up a franchise, if you want, uh, of the Aswali movement in England. I have a professor in Canada who's working on the same model in Canada. I have a pilot in Sweden. And I just today had a guy from Bosnian, I think. Sorry if I'm wrong on that. I think it was Bosnian. And he's going to... He brought the franchise contract with him, so he's going to set up the Swali movement in Bosnia. So I'm just, you know, I'm baffled about how this consciousness wave moves because it's just interesting to watch. It's like there's, there's some uh, energy work at play here that is just, it's amazing. When one half it's starts to resonate, yeah. Uh, well, now it's 145. But while you're saying all this, it's 144, which is kind of a funky number in New Age and the Bible and stuff like that. So you're like, I'm amazed to watch this happen. If it's happening, this is the best way to go for it. I mean, Raphael and I talk about this all the time, where it's like, how would a soft reset look? People don't want to just guillotine people, I don't think. I mean, we're all kind of tired of war. And, the, you know, there's some people who want to stand up for this, but the majority of people just want to, like, figure it out, move on, inherit, you know, the meek inherit the earth kind of thing. Where it's like, look, we don't need queens, we don't need all this stuff, um, and it sounds like you're part of that whole kind of when we say 144, it's like this kind of, like I said, biblical uh, revelations illusion thing, but there's other elements to it, in that I think there's an awakening tribe of sovereignty basically coming online, and I don't know what your ontological presuppositions are, but I think a lot of people who are incarnated right now chose to be here during these times of change, and to be the front line of a war of love and sovereignty and not, you know, bullets and, you know, pyramid schemes and stuff like that. So I think it's, in a way, it's not surprising, but it's, it's always pleasantly surprising how it's going down um, because people are organically doing this. They're doing it through their own volition and they're um, spreading the torch internationally, even like you're saying. Yeah, and I think it's, it's if you look at it in a certain perspective, I would say that it's inevitable. It's like you can tell a child not to go into puberty. You can tell a child not to touch its own genitals, but it's not going to happen. It's going to go into puberty. It's going to go through teenage years. 
and it's going to experience what it means to fall in love with the opposite sex or its own sex for that matter. Because that is what we are meant to do. Period. End of story. New paragraph, right? So this evolution is, you cannot stop it. You can try, but it's, it's headless to think that we cannot grow up. We are here to grow up, period. And that's why I think when you look at it as a, well, I'm awake, I have declared my own sovereignty, blah, blah, blah. And there's another guy, he's the same, we're just two, and there are five million Danes who are asleep. It's not like that, because it's a consciousness wave, and it goes unseen through everything. So when I wake up, my neighbor wakes up. He might not wake up at the same pace, at the same rate, at the same time as I do, but he's going to wake up. It's like your sisters and brothers. They didn't go to, uh, through puberty at the same time you did, right? Unless you, own, unless you only had twins, <laughs> then you probably did the this, this trip together. But it's like we are offset in time and don't focus your eyes on what's happening on the outside world. Because that is not where things are happening. They are happening within you. And you need to work with yourself. You need to work with your shadow side. You need to work with astrology. You need to follow the what is... Uh, What's the moon doing? What is Saturn doing? Why is Saturn and Pluto in conjunction in the Sagittarius? Uh, sorry, in the in Capricorn right now. What does it. that mean? Yeah. Why is Mars six months in its own sign, the warrior sign? What does that signify, right? So there's a lot of stuff going on that is just on a grand, grand scale that we need to encompass into our daily lives. And we need to look up from the hamster wheel and say, okay, why am I supposed to wear this uh, cloth around my mouth? Why am I supposed to hide my child in a plastic cave? This is insanity. Because you need to look up and see that there are bigger things happening. Well, that's at least my point of view. I would concur. And it's funny because I, I kind of liken it to... Um, sheet, you're a musician, she, and I don't really read music, but sheet music versus like hearing the music. So the sheet music, like you're saying, is the astrology, where it's like, look, Pluto Capricorn conjunction, or uh, Pluto Saturn conjunction um, Capricorn with Jupiter even for a while, and that means big changes, big death, big karma, big restructuring, um, and what the world, Capricorn institutions, you know, economic stuff, kingdoms, and if you see the sheet music saying that you might not know how it's going to play out the instrumentation like you know the notes are written in a certain way and somebody might sing it somebody might play it on a piano somebody might you know play it on glass cups tuned or whatever but it's going to be played like you're saying there's inevitability to it it's, it um i just read with my fiance this book which i highly suggest to people it's only like 100 pages or something called the alchemist by paulo coelho um it's kind of a very short book about right? yeah it's wonderful oh you get it, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well he says maktub right like this arabic kind of term in there uh, even though he's not arabic um being it is written so it's like this is the story that's already written we're just playing our parts and um i do appreciate that you've kind of been tuning into this score well enough to be able to pick up the measures and jam well because not every i mean i've seen the music but i haven't been doing my part i don't think and i'm not beating myself up but it's like uh 
I'm more reluctant to feel comfortable knowing how to instrument like put this out in the instrumentation versus knowing that the times are this it's one thing to say yes we're, there's a path here it's another thing to walk it so i really do appreciate that people like you are making the moves in from the theoretical into the practical because once more people see that it's possible 100th monkey effect kicks in and then all of a sudden everyone's like why are we even dealing with governments like that or national you know queens and or whatever banks so i think the changes are here folks and i i don't think you know just like people talk about the new normal versus the old normal with COVID kind of stuff, like there's a new normal and it's more about sovereignty and collectivism and uh, like you're saying, green thinking, like in, in um, ecologically sound kind of policy. Just to be clear, ways. I think you mean communitarianism rather than collectivism, just by the way. Whatever. Yeah, I don't know what I mean half the time. I'm not a political psychologist or a philosopher. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, uh, Raphael, is there anything kind of you wanted to say in wrapping up? Well. All I can see is we have a guest, Anya is here, whom we may like to have make a statement or ask a question if she's up for it. And if you're up for it, Anders. Absolutely. So Anya, kindly go ahead. Good evening. Um, hi, Anya. Hi. Um, I listen to Jim and what you're talking and uh, Jim were talking about the Matrix as an example and uh, karma and all that and sorry guys if we really want to change something can we really change when we use the base the old basic stuff for example karma i know so many people say tell karma is the same lie that, that we are a, a sin or a sinner and um we all want to change. We all want to something new. But we use the old basics. And I have no idea how, why. We all know that um, concept, idea, or words, it's all an illusion. Okay. Let us create a new illusion. But our own illusion. And the basic must not be that, that old crap. We can make it completely new let me say out of nowhere out of nothing but so most people try to fix it old crap instead of creating a complete new crap sorry it's all good ex nihilo is a kind of tricky concept i i think what they're doing at least in terms of the uh situation with their community is taking pre-existing structures and refabricating them with sovereignty at the helm um, I mean, I guess it could be debated either way, but I don't like to, we're evolving through this gets into human gene keys and, or gene keys and human design stuff. We're going from the third eye kind of how are we thinking about it to a place of solar plexus, like sovereignty of willpower. Um, maybe we'll all, you know, maybe there could be a new song, but it seems like at some level, you know, men and women in a physical body with needs like eating and sex and speaking their minds and creating that's going to be kind of the substrate and i mean it's weird because on the one hand i see what you're saying on yet but on the other hand it's like uh, whether we call it karma or duty or uh, any number of things like it seems like uh there is a um substrate to reality that we are programmed to adhere to whether we want to uh, believe that or not is a choice i guess 
like we, we function in a reality with certain governances like polarities and stuff like that so um i don't know what you mean exactly by like starting from scratch because well, it seems like maybe putting it into perspective uh from my point of view so anya of course in many ways i completely agree like and even here it's it's a big question you know what who or what even created uh the higher z's or how it is properly called and the this scenario and so on like what was the framework then is that not already in a sense a fallen state let's say because you even need written laws you potentially have some form of contracts even though it is of course seen from a kali yuga perspective right now much superior to what we have right now however i would also say that even just a basic understanding of everyone realizing even what this system really is both in terms of the legal aspects the quote-unquote rights aspect the fact even that this current system is derived from divine uh, i was about to say intervention but like uh, you know there's always this pleading to the divine and uh, and then even on a very basic level everyone recognizing yeah what the system is what it is doing how it is ritualistic in many aspects and just that awareness itself i think can propel anything and then to me at least it seems highly uh, shall i say charismatic to look into their own books and be like oh we just we're going to stay within the game in a sense but elevate like our systems status, are let's necessary say. at some level it seems yeah but even here even if i say i want and let's even say ex nihilo system or as i like to call it the x factor as uh, consciousness is accelerating in frequency the the unknown factor or the variability in every moment increases in every moment however even here i would say in terms of state of mind a platform of understanding myself to be a living uh, being living man or woman potentially part of a sovereign council government or ever of the land so on and so forth maybe a superior state of mind to invent something completely new than one being completely unconscious of who or what i am and or at the same time you know through let's say black magic actually being you know lost at sea wearing a probably two face masks at the same time and i don't know what else if you can see what i'm saying so i'm all with you but i just see it as a gradual process and at least to me what anders is doing i think it's it's super amazing and uh, yeah i mean i dig it like <laughs> what can i say baby steps thank you anya it was a very interesting statement and i certainly agree with you uh, on all the foundational thoughts uh, in your statement and if i may just elaborate a little bit on my angle on what you say i think the the essence of our problem here in this evolution is the understanding of who we really are and if we do not understand who we really are then we can really not create a new reality but what make what gives me comfort is that i know we are in to or on the crust of this new age of aquarius and i know aquarius quite well because i'm also a, an astrologer and i follow astrology very closely because the the stars don't lie and when you are dealing with uranus the planet uranus and the energies of the aquarian age you which is in taurus right now yeah yeah and you can expect very very sudden and quite amazingly changes that you absolutely could not have imagined because they come to you like in a flash and then everything just changes 
So imagine this, if you will, that we live in an age where we, in a second, or in a flash, or in a very short period of time, actually do have the power, the capability, and the imagination to, first of all, know ourselves, and from that knowing who we really are, we actually can create a new and much better reality. And I believe that we are in the process of becoming what we really are. So who knows if we are going to keep on having these flesh bodies. Maybe we'll have bodies of light, I don't know. Let's see what happens. Certainly, I'm open to something really amazingly new because I think that's exactly what is needed. I think for understanding who we really are, what we really are, Jesus Christ, I think first we need to know from where we are and how we are. We are here from different planets. We are, how, Jesus, I'm out of words. Well, what you say, of course, uh, I mean, there's so many angles uh, we could go down here, but I would say even, especially considering all the confusion, you know, and the strife and so on and so forth, I guess it really makes sense just as with the quite big demonstrations that are happening recently. Uh, first of all, you know, of course, not to, <laughs> you know, project, uh, um, how should I say that everything that ever happens is a deep state operation, but that's more about the demonstrations that I'm talking about here. But what I actually mean is uh, finding really, really simple, really basic common values. And here, for example, saying, understanding and realizing, claiming, acting like I am a living man or woman rather than I'm uh, some loot lost at sea can already, I think, be a great starting point and really good common ground and also actually be part of um, the, I'm about to say enlightenment, but I mean it in the sense of uh, exp explanation, I don't even know how to say it, um, of again, knowing yourself and no really knowing that you are not someone here just to follow orders, this and that, but that even their structure is derived from divine law and that you can realize yourself to be living, first of all, And then we can get into living light, which, by the way, is the name of the Sasani people, my favorites, as we talk about light bodies, right? Um, or even just have a different type of um, view on your biological system, then you can already see that literally everyone is full of light, you know, starting with the DNA as far as I understand. So I think uh, self-definition, let me put it this way, is really important. Without any self-definition, we could not sustain our existence upon this plane. That is my understanding. However, certainly upgrading our self-definitions to something more positive and expanding than what we have been taught to believe, I just see as certainly a great way forward. And maybe inevitable. I can go. Let's hear it, Jim. Jim just said it's in inevitable. Anders, anything else you would like to add or any uh, closing statements, anything maybe that was left out in our talk so far? Well, I would just uh, encourage everyone to just, if you want freedom, just walk like a free man uh, or free woman, of course. 
I think this is a journey. For me, at least, it is a journey. It's a consciousness journey. And I'm just walking one step at a time because I know that I can't rush any change. I know that I'm not alone in participating in this change. I'm just one man doing my thing. And I know that there are millions doing their thing. And together, we are creating a way of consciousness. I don't know where we are ending. I have a vision of what I would like for us to end up in. But I think it, I think it's important to keep a positive uh, outlook on the outcome of this transformation. And again, if you look to the astrology, it says it's going to be really rough <laughs> uh, six months uh, time that is ahead of us. But on the other side of that, I think it's going to be like, okay, now the storm has died out and the sun is back and the wind is calm and the weather is really good. So let's do something different. What comes to mind a little is uh, I keep referencing like the Death Star, maybe it's time to build the Life Star <laughs> or something <laughs> instead of zapping planets and blowing them up, we zap them and free them. Kind of like Captain EO with the Michael Jackson thing. Well, probably you know what I'm talking about. Um, well, it's been fascinating. Thank you so much, Anders, for coming on and Anya for your comment. Um, I think that, yeah, the future is always unfolding and we just have to kind of enjoy the ride. So try to do your part. And it's ironic because it's the chariot card episode. So, you know, uh, chariot card episode. So it's like, um, we're in movement. We're, we're, you know, when you get in a roller coaster, it's like put your arms and hands and legs inside the the vehicle is moving so we're in movement we're going to finish this kind of process out that's kind of what astrology is and cycles within cycles but also it was kind of like we were saying uh, in line with the serious card um where it's like you don't have to save the world maybe we can't do that but what we can do is tell yourselves exactly yeah sure well thank you for having me again that was uh lovely and uh some very great questions from both Raphael, Anya, and Jim. Thank you very much for that. And very inspiring for me to be a part of this. So thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Anders. Uh, thank you, Anya. Thank you, Jim. Well, one of my favorite topics. So kindly come back anytime also in any sort of expanded version or anything that you would prefer. I'd be most happy to assist. And yeah. You know, in a sense, not to be proselytizing, but let's say, quote unquote, share the good news. That's what's coming to mind. So thank you. You get a council of people doing what he's doing, like other people, like Brendan and him and maybe some others and be like, hey, let's talk shop, y'all. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Yes. So we'll continue. Uh, thank you all for listening. Team Rabbit Hole live in action. Enjoy yourselves. Talk it up, 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 talk it up